All right, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning uh, to Sulphur Community Church. Uh, welcome those in this room as well as those who are, are watching from home. Uh, I feel like I need to introduce myself. Uh, my name is David Morris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, for the last three months, uh, Sulphur Community Church, you have let me uh, go home, uh, take some time of rest. We got now a 15-pound baby up here, and that was a part. That was the reason why uh, I needed some time to be able to to go home and care for my family. And so, Sulphur Community Church, you you allowed us to do that, and you cared for us in that way. So, I'm definitely grateful to you, uh, especially grateful uh, for uh, both Blake and Joey and their families, uh, because it wasn't long after that we had our baby that the Whitleys also had theirs. And so you have two of our three pastors now who have babies at home who need to care for their wives in that way. And, uh, and for those of you who don't know, all four of us, all three of our pastors and Joey, have full-time jobs. And so the preparation that it takes each week to prepare to preach um, God's Word to you and teach our church, uh, in addition to caring for our families, in addition to our jobs, um, there are... I'm not complaining, I'm just, I'm recognizing the effort that goes into that. And they were able to, to take care of that for us so that Trent and I could both care for our families well. So I just wanted to recognize them and I appreciate them. Um, before we get into our text, uh, just want to make a quick announcement. Uh, a lot of you know that effective as of 12.01 a.m. tomorrow morning, there's a statewide mask mandate. Uh, our leadership team is, has not been able to discuss what that's going to look like for our church, so... We'll make some announcements later this week. I just I, I wanted to let you know, like it hasn't escaped us. We know what's going on, but we want to be able to discuss with one another and talk about what's what, how we're going to function as a church with with that. So, just wanted to give you that. Uh, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter eight with me. We're going to continue our series, uh, the crushed head, the bruised heel. If you're new to us, we have been going through. Uh, all of Scripture, starting in Genesis, working our way to Revelation, uh, looking at the main storylines and how all of Scripture points us to Jesus, how, how the gospel is woven into everything, every aspect, from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, and that's where we are, and we are in week 28 now of this series. Uh, in addition to us doing this, on our website, we, we produce each week a guide to help further your study into the text that we've been looking at. So, uh, the quickest way to get there is to go to sulfurcommunitychurch.com. You scroll down a little bit, a little bit, and there'll be a current uh, sermon series. You click on that, and it brings you to a resources page. And then each week, we, where our media team uh, puts up the video recording, they also put on there the, the guide for the week. And th- those guides are just designed to encourage you to, to read the text on your own, to study it a little bit more deeply, to ask questions to the text and let the text answer those questions to you and then also explore, examine your own heart and how you might apply those things that you've learned. So I uh, want to let you know that that reference is out there for you. Uh, the, the text that Jason has already read for us this morning, Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56, it's a narrative. It's, it's a story. Uh, it is Luke's recording of a true event that occurred in the life of Jesus And this story is recorded in three of the four Gospels. The only Gospel that does not include this narrative is John's Gospel. So it's one of those things where if you've taken our Bible study methods class, we've talked about this, when you see something repeated, you pay attention. It's important. And so three of the four Gospels include this story. 
And honestly, it's actually a story within a story, as you'll see this morning. I'll kind of present it to you almost like we're watching a play. Natalie and I have just started trying to watch Hamilton. With a baby, it kind of takes like a week for us to get 30-minute increments in at a time to be able to watch this. But we started watching it, and I noticed there's an interlude. And that's what I thought of when I was reading this, is we have a main storyline of a man whose daughter is dying, coming to Jesus for for hope and, and out of desperation, And in the middle of that story, we have a little break, and there's another character that's introduced, and there's another story that occurs within that. And so that's the kind of the the way this breaks out, and I'm one, if if you've been around Soul for Community Church for a while, you kind of know how my, my mind works. I like to be structured, I like to be organized and have an outline for you. Well, the story kind of, it doesn't allow you to do that. And I shouldn't be taking away things from a story that's written, true events that have occurred, and like, oh, let me give you these simple points to follow. And so we're not going to do that this morning. We're just going to be following along with the story. And it, it includes a couple of miracles performed by Jesus. Now, during our study of John's gospel uh, with our church, you remember that we saw many miracles in John's gospel, and you saw, you remember the purpose, why those things were recorded by John. It was to re- reveal Jesus as God in the flesh, right? John made that explicit statement at the end of his gospel in chapter 20. He said, I am writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing those things, you might have eternal life. John's purpose was clear. Well, Luke also has an explicit purpose His actually occurs, for our benefit, at the very beginning in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He wrote, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke's purpose, clearly stated there, is that he wants to take all of these events, record them in a way that is ordered, it is structured, to give certainty to his friend Theophilus that these things are true. And while that's the explicit statement of Luke, there's also this implicit thing that comes out when you start to look at the way that Luke writes these things. He does record some of the same events that John recorded, but he writes them differently, and what you get to see is the humanity of Jesus. So while we look at John's gospel, and we saw how John was writing all these things to show that he was God in the flesh here on earth, when Luke writes this, he goes into a great extent, and he shows us the man Jesus. And so we get a little bit more insight into who he is, what he values, what he cares about. And we'll see that manifest itself this this week as we study this text. Now, I want to point out to you, as you study this text this morning and in the coming week, I want to encourage you not to get completely wrapped up in the miracles. Is Jesus' power clearly revealed in the miracles? Absolutely. And you should. You should take some time to meditate on that and think about about the power of Jesus Christ, the, the control that he has over creation, 
over life and death and illness and disease. He's got that, and that will come out in the text. But we should also get to know Jesus as the person. And so let's pray as we enter our time of study that that would be our focus this morning, that we would get to know Jesus. Not necessarily the things that he did, but let's get to know him. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning grateful for your word, grateful for this church family and our ability to, to gather together to sing songs of praise to you and also to study your word. And Father, as we enter this time of study, we pray that you would reveal your son Jesus to us. Let us get to know the person of Jesus Christ. And through that knowledge, Father, we pray that sanctification would occur, that you would make us more holy, that you would change our hearts to be more like him. We pray all this in your son's holy name. Amen. So our story begins in verse 40. Jesus is returning from the land of the Gerasenes. And so if you go back earlier on in this chapter, what, what happens is Jesus has been doing a lot of miraculous works. Crowds are starting to surround him. He's getting a lot of attention. And you see this through the ministry of Jesus. From time to time, he just kind of gets away from people, right? That's why I feel justified in taking about three months away from all of you. Jesus did it too. Jesus would separate himself and he'd go spend some time with his father in prayer and devoting himself to that. And that's kind of what happened here. Jesus is surrounded by this crowd. He's looking around. He's in Capernaum. He's like, where am I going to go? All right, let's hop on a boat, guys. And so they hop on a boat. They go across. He gets to the shore. He comes across a man who's possessed by a demon. The demon's name is Legion. And so he goes through this miraculous work of releasing this man from that bondage. And then he hops back in the boat, comes back to Capernaum, and what does he find? The crowd welcomes him. They've been waiting the whole time. This crowd that has been following him sees him go off on the boat, and I'm sure they didn't stay there like days and weeks on hand, right? But they have people posted up. Everybody's waiting for Jesus to return, and as he does, the crowd comes back. And we have some hints from the text that since Jesus had already been healing people, he had, he had already raised someone from the dead, there are people in this crowd that are coming for that reason. They're coming for healing. They're coming because they're hurting and they're suffering. There are others who are curious and they're coming because of the signs that are being performed. There are those who are Jewish and are like, is this actually the Messiah, the one that they've been promised about? Let's go see it for ourselves. And then there are those in the crowd who just want to see him make a mistake. They want to see him fall. And so you have this great crowd surrounding him. And we learn in our text that there was a particular man there that day. His name was Jairus. Jairus was the ruler of the local synagogue. If you think about Jewish life, there's not much higher you can go in society than to be the one who runs the, the center of all life, the synagogue. And Jairus was this man. And Jairus himself was not dying. Jairus was not sick. But Luke records for us that his daughter was. And he says it, it's his only daughter. It, the emphasis is there for a reason. This is his one and only child, and she is 12 years old. And that's significant because a 12-year-old girl in Jewish custom, this is supposed to be the best time of her life. 
This is the moment where she's passing now into becoming a woman. She is now eligible for marriage at the age of 12. I know for us, that's like some of you are thinking about your kids at 12 years old. No way. But that's what was going on at this time. And, but not for this girl. This girl finds herself on her deathbed. And so Jairus comes to Jesus out of desperation falls down at her feet, and that would have been a shocking thing for this crowd to see. This is a man who is, is supposed to represent all of Jewish customs, and he's supposed to represent all of the Jewish religion, and the Pharisees are definitely against Jesus. Jesus has already begun traveling around teaching in the synagogues, and they're going around and they're challenging him, right? They're asking him tough questions, trying to make him trip and stumble in front of everybody, and of course they get... They get proven wrong every single time. But this man, the ruler of the synagogue, comes to Jesus, bows down at his feet, and he, out of desperation, says, Will you come? Will you come to my home? My daughter is dying. As you think about what led the man to Jesus' feet that day, his position in society no longer matters. The privilege that he has of being the ruler of the synagogue and, and the high regard that he's held with, he doesn't care about that anymore. His wealth, his possessions, you can have it all. Jesus, I need you to come save my daughter. I don't care what else happens. He's driven to falling on his faith before Jesus out of both desperation and hope. The hope, because he's seen Jesus, he's experienced it, he's heard of the things that Jesus has done. And if anybody can help his daughter right now, there's only one person, and it's this man. And so you think about Jairus, who's at home, praying to God, say, God, my daughter is sick. What am I going to do? And then he gets word, hey, the healer's back. The one who had gone away on the ship to, the, to a, another land has returned you got to imagine the father gets dressed and he, he runs out of his house. And for whatever reason, he's able to make his way through the crowd to Jesus' feet. He says, Jesus, I need you. Will you come to my home? And Jesus responds mercifully to him. He does. He begins to go towards the man's house. And if this were a play, this is where the curtains would fall and we'd have an interlude. We're going to take a break from that main storyline. All we know is Jesus is going to go to the house. But then there's a separate story that comes up. We're introducing to another person. A woman who has had a bloody discharge coming from her body for 12 years. Now think about it. I want to, I want to put you in her shoes as a Jewish woman. She is unclean all the time. Think about Jewish law. If you had a bloody discharge, you were considered unclean, and, and you had to go through a ritual process once that stopped. This lady has been in this condition for 12 years. What that means is she has had to isolate herself from her whole community. Not only that, she can't even go into the synagogue to worship, because if she does, everyone around her will be unclean. For 12 years, this lady has lived this life. We also learn that it's not for lack of effort. She has exhausted all of her resources, going to doctor after doctor after doctor, seeking someone who might be able to provide the cure. 
I think about some of the things Natalie has gone through. Natalie has had some medical issues where we've gone to multiple doctors, had multiple procedures and tests, and at the end of the day, the doctors say, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe you'll get better. Can you imagine the frustration? Some of you can identify with that. The frustration of, I've spent all my money. I've gone to the professionals, the ones who are supposed to give me healing, and here I am. What a contrast we have between our two characters in the story. We have a man and we have a woman. We have a rich person and we have a now a poor person. We have one who is highly regarded. We have one who is despised. We have one who is respected and then we also have one who is rejected. We've got a ruler and we've got an outcast. And while they're very different, they also have some similarities that are pretty obvious as you, as you read this text. Both of them come to Jesus in the same way, out of desperation, yet some hope. This woman who has had to live the last 12 years of her life completely isolated from everyone because she is perpetually unclean, pushes through her shame. I want you to notice how she approaches Jesus. She does not come before him. She comes from behind him. Now, I don't know if that's because she's ashamed, that she doesn't feel like she can actually put herself right in front of him to do it, just like Jairus did. I don't know if it's because she's not supposed to be there, right? I mean, you've got a crowd of people and she's unclean. If she touches someone, now they're unclean and everybody kind of knows her situation. So maybe she's just trying to hide that. I'm not supposed to be here right now. Or maybe because of her condition, the crowds are not allowing her access. Maybe they just kind of like parted the sea for Jairus because he's the ruler of the synagogue, right? He's highly regarded, so he can just walk right up to Jesus, but not this woman. And this woman comes from behind and just reaches out desperately. If she could just touch the fringe of his garment, clinging to the hope that she has, that that's where she would find healing. And her hope becomes a reality. The text says, immediately, after 12 years, multiple doctor's visits, all of her money spent, she touches the fringe of his garment, and immediately, the discharge is done. She's no longer bleeding. That is amazing. That's, that's a miracle. That's one that we should kind of take a step back from the text. I know we kind of want to find out how all this is going to play out, but just think about that. Her faith led her to just touch his garment and she found healing. It's the power that Jesus Christ has. And then you have this, this interesting thing that occurs where Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? Now, that's significant because before we even get to Peter's response, just I, I found it interesting when you think about the fact, it just, Luke describes the crowds were pressing in on him. And Peter's about to point that out. But the crowds are pressing in on him. And Jesus says, wait a minute, who touched me? And there's not one person that raises their hands and says, well, I did. I bumped into you. I, I reached out for you. I was touching you. Not one person in this crowd says anything. So then Peter's like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched you? The crowds are all around you. Everybody's touching you. 
And Jesus says, no, Peter. Who touched me? Because I felt power go out for me. And that is something that you or I will never understand what that feels like. What does it feel like for power to go out from us? We can't identify with that. It's something mysterious that, that only Jesus could describe. I mean, the only thing I can possibly think of, I've been on a Marvel kick ever since I got the flu, like, last year. So I'm quarantined at, host, at the home with the flu. We're not going to talk about quarantine, but you understand. Like, I'm just like, okay, do I have any free time? I'm not reading right now because I'm about to fall asleep. Let me, let me watch a movie. I was holding Eli. Let me watch a movie or something. And the only thing I can think of is you have these supernatural um, superheroes that have, they have some powers, and it goes out from them whenever they do things. Like, that's Jesus. Jesus is like a superhero. He is supernatural. He has this power. Only he's real. Let me clarify. He's not Iron Man. He's, he's the real deal. Okay? But he, he has this power go out from him. And he knows. He feels it. He says, wait, no. Who touched me? The woman feeling exposed because no one else is saying anything. And she knows that she's the one falls down at his feet. You see the similarity yet again. She falls down at his feet, says, Jesus, it was me. I'm the one who did it. And how does Jesus respond to her? Does he say, hey, the fact that you touched me, that's, that's healed you. Does he say, hey, your willingness to come before me today healed you. What does he say? Your faith has made you well. See, yes, she was desperate, but there was a faith that she had. There was a confidence that if she could go to him, she believed in Jesus, that Jesus was going to be able to heal her. She just had to touch his garment. That's all she had to do. That's how powerful this man is. And I don't want to make a big fuss there's a lot more people maybe around her that maybe they need more help than I do, but if I could just touch his garment and I'll, I'll be okay. And Jesus stops everything, including, remember, he's on his way because there is a young girl who is dying. He stops and he has this conversation with this woman in front of the whole crowd. And do you feel that restoration that would have occurred to her that day? This lady who had been an outcast in her community, Jesus has healed her and he stops and he comforts her and he welcomes her in and says, you can now come be a part. You are made well. Your faith has made you well. Jesus was accessible. He made himself available, even to the one who was on the margins. He was never too busy. And this is something that even this week I was confronted with with my job. I asked the question to my staff, do you feel like you can come ask me questions? Because I never want to be the one when you come and ask me a question, and I respond, oh, I got so much going on, but let me stop everything for you. I never want to be that guy. Jesus was never that guy. Jesus always had time, and he made time for this woman, and he was compassionate. He identifies with the ones who is suffering. He identifies with the one who is hurting. And I point these things out to you 
Not so that you can self-reflect and think about, okay, well, how accessible am I? How flexible am I? How compassionate am I? That's, that's not where I want you to go this week as you consider that the implications from this text. Because that would just be behavior modification, and that is something that will not last. I'm not giving you a list of three things. All right, go home, and you work on this. Go work and be flexible. So your focus every day is, all right, if somebody comes and interrupts me, let me put it down. Let me be present with them and handle that. That's not what I'm telling you to go home and do, because that's not going to last. But what I am telling you to do is look who Jesus is. I want you to see who your Savior is. Because from the renewing of your mind, as you know Jesus more accurately, you know who your Christ is. Those things that I just mentioned that I'm telling you not to go do right now, those things are going to come. Because the Holy Spirit's going to transform your heart. The Holy Spirit may say, hey David, look, remember how Jesus has time for you always? Shouldn't you also have time for others? It's going to come not from because a pastor said, hey, you got to go be flexible. Hey, make sure you're accessible. It's going to come from Jesus Christ as the one who had time for you, the one who made accommodations for you, the one who is compassionate towards you and can identify with your hurting and your suffering. That's where lasting change is going to come. So I want you to see Jesus. That's what, that's what I want you to do. I don't want you to think about all the things that you need to do wrong first. Those things come after. I want you to know who Jesus is first. Now again, if this were a play, our interlude is over. This whole side story is complete. And then the curtains rise, and now we find out the tone has changed. Like, we're, we're going from this miraculous moment where Jesus has just healed this woman, and we're kind of like, yes, the hero did it. And then the, the tone changes, and that you find out the worst news possible. While Jesus was speaking, is what it says. So there, there's this idea of, you know, Jesus was never one to just, let me do a miracle, and all right, now let me move on, right? Jesus did a miracle, and then he communicated something about himself using that miracle to authenticate who he was and what his message was. So it says, as he was speaking, we don't know how long that took. If he was long-winded, like, like your pastors, it could have been 45 minutes to an hour. Whatever it was, all we know is there was a delay in Jesus going to see this girl. And the result is death. A messenger comes from Jairus' home and says, hey, she's dead. Don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. It, it's of no use. It's too late. What a crushing blow to Jairus. I mean, you've got to think, is Jairus sitting there watching Jesus perform this miraculous work, thinking, that's what he's going to do for my daughter. I just need to get him there to my daughter, and the same thing's going to happen. And he finds out that his daughter has, has died. Some of you know that I have a, a one-year-old nephew in, in Baton Rouge. I'll try to get through it, but it's been tough the last couple of weeks. Um, I have a one-year-old nephew who, two Sundays ago, he had been having some episodes of very intense pain. Uh, he would curl up his back at, hold his head. He was in pain. His mom and dad didn't know what was going on. They had already set up an appointment for him to see a doctor, but it could not last anymore. They had to bring him to the hospital. 
they do a scan, they find out that this one-year-old child has a tumor a little bit smaller than a golf ball at the base of his brain, causing this pain. Within two days, surgery is scheduled to remove this tumor. And then we know that what that means, more than likely, and the doctors told the family, even leading into the operation, because of how aggressive this tumor is, we, we're pretty confident it's going to be cancer. And so I'm thinking about each week as we got those updates, blow after blow after blow, and I'm just thinking like, man, I'm starting in my own heart, feel hope escape. I want so badly for the news to be positive. I wanted to come back and say, good news, we got it out and there's nothing he needs to worry about anymore. Or hey, guess what? It was a tumor and it was causing some discomfort, but good news, it's not cancer. Tuesday of this week, we got the confirmation that yes, it is indeed cancer and we're waiting for the the treatment plan to come with the St. Jude diagnosis. But see, the difference is he's still alive, right? Like my nephew, Colton, is still alive. And I'm not his father, but I am a father. And I can identify with what that would feel like when you feel like you were this close to saving your child's life. All Jesus had, if he would come just a little bit sooner, we would be celebrating just like that woman was in town. We get the word and they say, hey, there's no need for the teacher to come anymore. It's too late. But hope is never lost with Jesus. In fact, I will go to the extent of saying hope is only found in Jesus. You see, you look back at the woman's scenario. She was going to all these doctors. And, and has, has God providentially allowed for technology and science to be able to figure out how to treat people? Absolutely. But there gets a point where there's that one bit of bad news that doctors can do nothing about. And that's that announcement of death. And that's what's occurred with this 12-year-old girl. But not for Jesus. Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid. Believe and she will be well. When Jesus gets to the house, I told you this this story is recorded in three Gospels. If you look at Mark's Gospel, he describes it as chaotic. There's a lot of commotion as Jesus is approaching the house. And the reason that is, in their, in their culture, they would have had professional wailers, professional mourners. You would have had people lamenting for a living. That's what they did. They would go to the funerals, and they would cry, and they would scream. And, and it was a part of their tradition that, that this would have happened. And because this man was wealthy, the wealthier you were, the more people you would have come do that. So as Jesus is approaching, all that's going on in front of him, not to mention he's bringing with him who knows how many from the crowd because now Jesus has basically said, hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to fix it. Well, let's go watch him do that. And so Jesus approaches the house, but Jesus is not caught up in that moment. Jesus is focused on one thing, and that is revealing his glory, raising this girl from the dead. And so as he enters the home, he tells everybody to stop. He brings with him the mom and the dad and three disciples. And this is the first time that you see Jesus separate his inner circle from the other disciples. He brings with him Peter, John, and James into the home. 
You can assume he left the other nine to kind of be like crowd control, make sure nobody else gets in the house. And they go in, and Jesus says, hey, stop mourning. Stop the wailing. The funeral's over. She's not dead. She's sleeping. With those simple words, Jesus redefined death for that, for that crowd. What they, what they had experienced that day, Jesus was taking and saying, hey, look, it, it's, it's nothing more than a Sunday afternoon nap. This is temporary. She's sleeping. And just in case you were to try to explain this away by saying, well, maybe they didn't really know that she was actually sleeping. Maybe she literally was sleeping and they thought she was dead. Dr. Luke, remember who our author is, he's a doctor by profession, says they laughed. And so immediately you know that those are the ones that were hired, right? Because if it was true family members, you wouldn't be laughing in that moment. They laughed and said, no, we know she is dead. She's not sleeping. But with two simple words, Jesus says, child, arise. And this 12-year-old girl pops up out of bed like no 12-year-old has ever done. Fully restored. I mean, how long has she been on her literal deathbed? And she pops up. And it says that her spirit came back to her. It wasn't like another spirit. It was her life that Jesus fully restored. Another miracle. A miracle that shows that Jesus is sovereign, that he is in control over death itself. And Jesus closes, I mean, there's some, there's some interesting things here that happen right at the end. It's almost like you want it to stop here, right? Like, that's the moment. She rises, close the curtains, we're done. That's a miracle, and let's celebrate. It's interesting because, and this is why Luke does what he does. Because in these closing remarks, you get to see Jesus, the man. Jesus says, hey, let's get her something to eat. He's present in that moment with this girl. He's like, hey, mama, go get something started in the kitchen. Your daughter needs to eat. She's been on her deathbed. I'm sure she hasn't eaten in a while. And Jesus is spending time with this family. And it's interesting because he says that, it says that the, the parents were amazed, but Jesus told them, hey, don't go tell anybody. Don't go tell anybody about this. And there are other places in Scripture where Jesus does that, right? Like Jesus does something, and he tells whoever it is, like, hey, but don't go tell anybody right now. And in some cases, it appears as though Jesus is trying not to go public with his ministry at that time, so he's trying to control how all this is happening. But I don't really think that's what's going on in this one. I mean, just think contextually, think about what's going on around him. Think about the great crowd that has followed him to this house. They know the girl was dead. They know that Jesus is going to bring her back to life. At least he said he was going to. Do you think that they really have to go out and tell anybody, like, hey, Jesus did a miracle? Like, everybody's going to know about this. I think what's going on here is just in that moment, Jesus is saying, hey, mom and dad, I want you to take a moment, and I want you to spend it with your daughter who you just got back. And I want to be here with you during that moment. Jesus is right there with that family. He's compassionate. He, he cares for them. He's not about going about and 
let me just get more attention for myself necessarily. That's not, in that moment, that's not what he's doing. Right now, he's after them. I want you to realize what's just occurred today. And that family's life would be forever changed. I mean, we don't know this for sure, but we do know that the man displayed some level of faith to even come to Jesus and to say, hey, will you come? Because I know if you look at another gospel, if you just put your hand on her, you will heal her. He has some level of faith in this man, Jesus Christ. More than likely, as the ruler of the synagogue, he's actually heard him teach in his synagogue. The implications here for us this morning, as we think about this text, and think about this event that occurred in the life of Jesus and the people that were involved, is, first of all, Jesus is accessible to you, too. He's available to you. He's compassionate towards you. He can identify with your suffering. He can identify with your pain. And so if you are in in a season of suffering right now, whether it be minor or major, I want you to know that Jesus is there for you, that you can go to him in prayer and be confident that he hears you and he cares for you. If you have those lingering questions like, why, why are these things happening to me? Or why is God allowing this to happen? Does he even care about me? I'm telling you, he does. And you can be confident that you can go to him and he will hear you. And you can be honest with him. Tell him, God, I, I don't know if you care about me or not. This is the way I feel. I mean, I've been reading the Psalms as part of my, my reading plan. And you see that a lot with some of the Psalms of David. It's like, God, how long? How long will it be? When are you going to, to inter, interact in what's going on in my situation? When are you going to do something? But then he always responds with, but praise you because I know you're good and your steadfast love endures forever. And not only does he hear you and care for you, but you can be confident that he has the power to do something about it. I think about sometimes at work we have we have like a mission statement. It's, it's one team, one mission. And, and one of the things is like holding people accountable to the culture that we have set. And there's been a couple times where I've heard someone complaining about someone in another department to someone who has no power to do anything about it. And we, our culture allows me to kind of step in in those moments, say, hey, look, you know, I heard you doing that. That's not helpful. If you have a problem, let's go to somebody who has the authority to do something. When you think about it in light of Jesus, like who do you turn to first? Do you turn to your spouse? Do you turn to a friend and say, hey, look, this is what I'm going through, but you haven't spent any time talking to Jesus and asking for God to, to, to take care of you? You haven't expressed your desires to God, but you want to go talk to somebody else? The thing is, Jesus has the power to do something about it, but your friend, your spouse, it's an impossible burden for them. They, they, can, they can bear it with you, but they can't fix it. And so you can go to him, and, and if it's within the will of the Father, he can do something about it. If it's within the will of the Father that you continue on in your suffering, he can also do something about that. He'll give you the strength that you need to go through it, to press on, knowing that ultimately it will come out for your good. The greatest implication in this text, obviously, is the revelation of Jesus' power over death. 
and what, what hope that brings. To both the woman and the child, faith in Jesus' power over death brought them healing. For us, it is through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection that we find our hope. That our lives are restored, that we are healed, and one day the power and effect of sin will be no more. So for those of us who have trusted in Christ to deliver us from our death penalty, what is death? We shall not fear it. Because, see, for us, death is just an entryway into the eternal. Death is gain. Because we get to be with Jesus. So we have no fear. It's temporary, like a Sunday afternoon nap. May we be faithful stewards of this life that he's given us here on this earth. As we long for the eternal joy and glory with our King, our Savior, our Lord. I want to close, and as we enter into a, a time of prayer and singing a song of worship to reflect on what we've learned today, what God has shown us, I want to read from a psalm written by David to kind of prepare our hearts for that. It's in Psalm 34, if you want to turn there with me. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned.
the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father, we come before you and we we want to tell you that we're going to bless you at all times. That your praise will continually be on our lips. Father, we know that in order for us to be able to honestly say that, that you would have to do something in our hearts. There are moments where hope escapes us. There are moments where we, we take our eyes and we, we move it, remove it from you and we look at what's going on around us and we get caught up in that, forgetting who you are. But Lord, as we've seen in this psalm, we know that you are near to the brokenhearted and that you save the crushed in spirit, that when we cry out to you, you hear us. Jesus, thank you for your compassion extended towards us. Father, thank you that, that you have inspired these words in, in Luke's gospel so that we might see the humanity of your son, Jesus Christ, in all of his glory. And we pray that as we see it, you would change our hearts. First of all, Father, we pray that we would love him more. That we would desire him more. And as we receive him and, and get to know him better, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you change our hearts. Father, we pray all of this for your glory. As we look forward to the eternal one day when we won't fear death, we won't have any, any death or sin around us. But just eternal joy in union with our King, with our Savior, with our Lord. As we go into this time of reflection and singing, Father, God, I pray for our church that we would respond with hearts full of joy, responding in worship and adoration and praise to who you are. And thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.